0: Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Ahmed al Mazmi from Princeton University.
1: I'm the co host, Mohammed Al-Sidari, head of Asian Studies at the King Faisal Center for Research in Islamic Studies and a postdoctoral fellow at the Hong Kong Institute for Humanities and Social Sciences.
0: Today, we are here to talk to Professor Ronald Sipo, the author of The Blue Frontier, Maritime Vision and Power in the Qing Empire, published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. Dr. Ronald Sipo is an associate professor in the Department of International History at the London School of Economics and Political Science. By discussing The Blue Frontier, Maritime Vision and Power in the Qing Empire, we will explore a revisionist history of the 18th century Qing Empire, told from a maritime perspective. Ronald argues that it is reductive to view China over this period exclusively as a continental power, with little interest in the sea. With a coastline of almost 14,500 kilometers, the Qing was not a landlocked state although it came to be known as inward-looking empire. Poe suggests that the Qing was integrated into the maritime world through its naval development and customs and its socialization. In contrast to our orthodox perception, the Manchu court, in fact, proactively engaged with the ocean politically, militarily, and even conceptually. The Blue Frontier, offers a much broader picture of the Qing as an Asian giant respond, responding flexibly to challenges and extensive interaction on all frontiers, both land and sea in the long 18th century within the Indian Ocean world. Welcome Ron to New Books of the Indian Ocean world. And thank you so much for joining us.
2: Well, thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: Our pleasure. Uh, We would like to start learning about the book uh, by learning about the author. If you can say a few words about yourself, about where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested uh, in your field of study, and if you would Mm. like to mention any scholars and books that shaped your thinking.
2: Yeah, surely. um, Thanks again for having me. So I was born and raised in colonial Hong Kong, where I completed my tertiary education. And I obtained my bachelor and master degrees at the Hong Kong Baptist University, uh, which is the very first place that I cultivated my interest in historical research. And at Baptist, uh, this is also where I met some very influential mentors, like Professor Clara Ho, Professor Ricardo Mack, and Professor K.K. Lee. Uh, I would say their principles and attitudes conducting historical research are still influencing me along the way. And after my study in Hong Kong, I then continue pursuing my doctoral degree in Heidelberg University in Germany, Uh, in in which I have to add that Heidelberg is one of the most charming cities that I've ever visited in Europe. Um, But of course, Heidelberg is not only enchanting as a university university town, but it's also one of the key centers of Chinese studies in the world. Uh, The psychologists I had the privilege to work with in Heidelberg are truly amazing. They are talented and very supportive, Uh, like my doctoral supervisor, Joachim Kurz, and the late professor Rudolf Wagner, who was our great leader at the time. I would say that they are just incredible and and absolutely amazing. And to be completely honest, I, I wouldn't be able to complete my first book without my training in Heidelberg. And through my doctoral training, I'm also very lucky to have obtained some opportunities visiting some other institutions in the UK, in Japan, and in the States. And my journey in these institutions may really helped sharpen the directions of my doctoral project, uh, which eventually became my first book in my academic career, which is The Blue Frontier.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, excellent. Um, let's now turn to the book how did the book idea develop uh, and if you can tell us more about your research process and your writing experience
2: yeah sure Yeah, sure. well the, the idea for the book came to me uh, during my high school years which was quite a while ago uh, but I can still remember when I was a high school student in Hong Kong Uh, My teachers kept on telling me that the Qing Empire was pathetically weak in sea battles, and the empire itself only paid attention to maritime matters, including coastal defense and establishing a navy and so forth, after the First Opium War. Well, even though their argument seems to be sensible, I was quite skeptical about it, uh, because the reason was quite simple. Well, to me, the Qing Empire was a huge empire which had a, had a coastline of, as you said earlier, almost 1500 kilometers. And it was not a landlocked state. And the other problem is that the, even though the Qing was apparently weak in sea battles in the 19th century, it was once a shining Asian power in the 18th century. So as a result, the, the contrasting halves of the image that the Qing Empire was a powerful continental empire, while at the same time, a wickling at sea, at sea seems contradictory to me. And so that I would say that this is one of the principal reasons that compelled me to investigate this matter further, and, and ultimately to, to write this book.
1: Could you briefly introduce the Qing Empire to our listeners and how the sea has usually figured in Chinese historiography? since the oceanic expeditions of Zheng He during the previous Ming era, or even perhaps earlier during the Yuan? Mm,
2: Absolutely. Uh, Well, as far as I'm concerned, the the Ming empire maintained very close connections with the sea in Chinese historiography. Uh, One of the reasons is because of the seven expeditions led by the Admiral Zheng He, whom you just mentioned. And and after the Zheng He era, the Ming court, as agreed by most historians, decided to turn inland and sort of distance themselves from the sea. Uh, having said that, however, I mean the Ming dynasty didn't lose its connections with the ocean in Chinese historiography. Um, uh, it is very much because the Ming empire still suffered from the problem of piracy, especially Japanese pirates, for a fairly long period of time. So interestingly enough, is that uh, we can see that local officials, naval generals, and intellectuals in the Ming era didn't really stop writing about the coastal scenario. They wrote about the pirates, they wrote about the strategies to fight against those pirates, and they even produced sea charts to map the coast for proper coastal management. And compared to the Ming dynasty, the Qing, as portrayed in conventional historiography, was less maritime in many respects. I think there are a couple of reasons I mean, that contributed to such a conclusion. Uh, first of all, the Qing was ruled by the Manchus, whom originated in Manchuria, which is northeast China nowadays, and they were renowned for their land-based military campaigns. We're all familiar with their military history on land. In other words, I mean, they were more capable of riding on horses than mastering a boat in the sea. Therefore, in Chinese historiography, they didn't look maritime at all. And while the second reason is that I think our understanding of the Qing Empire has long been shadowed by its 19th century history. For example, from every textbook in Chinese history or world history, we were told that the the Qing was defeated by various seafaring powers from Europe, America, and even uh, Japan. As a result, historians were always under the impression that the Qing didn't really care about the maritime frontier before the First Opium War. And the final reason, in my view, that contributed to, to such a conclusion that I mentioned earlier has something to do with the relatively long peace in Asian seawater throughout the long 18th century. In East Asia, after Taiwan was annexed by the, Man- by the Manchus in 1683, uh, we used to believe that the Qing Empire did not have any perceptible threats coming from the ocean or from the maritime frontier. Therefore, the Qing court didn't infest anything substantial along the coast because most of the dangers came from other frontiers, including the northwest and the southwest frontiers, so taking all these arguments into consideration, the Qing as an empire in the 18th century only had very limited connections with the maritime world as portrayed in traditional Chinese historiography, which is very different from how the Ming was being described in uh, by historians in China.
0: Indeed, and, and I remember in most of the Indian Ocean survey courses that I've taken, China fades in the background by the 15th century, and the story turned to the western part of the ocean with um, yeah, the arrival I of the Portuguese. Indeed, uh, so-
2: indeed, indeed. I agree. There was, there was like a huge gap between the 15th century and, and the 19th century. It seems like there's nothing happened uh, uh, during that period of time. Like, but exactly. apparently, it shouldn't be the case.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and when I saw your book, I got really excited to, re- to revise my thinking about Chinese historiography. So let's now turn to the book, The Blue Frontier, Maritime Vision and Power in the Qing Empire and talk about the architecture of the book and its content. So the book consists of five chapters and the first one, Setting the Scene. Uh, I would like to learn more about what does it mean to write a revisionist history of China and what can the centering of the Qing's maritime history offer in this regard, particularly in the context of the so-called the new Qing history. Uh,
2: well, fundamentally, I think the key of writing revisionist history of China is, is to correct some of our traditional misapprehensions of the past of China, as well as its connections with the external world. Well, actually, I, historians have been working tirelessly since the 1980s to correct some of our misunderstanding of this country in Asia, as well as its connections I mean, with, within Asia itself. For example, we, we won't stick to any Eurocentric paradigm to explain the rise and fall of the Ming and the Qing dynasties anymore. Uh, likewise, only a few, very few of us will rely totally on the John King Fairbank fr- framework to explicate Sino-foreign relations. Um, so that I think we have been on the right track in a sense. But, but there's still quite a lot of misapprehensions which might not have anything to do with Eurocentrism um, that requires us to revisit and deconstruct. Um, for example, the, the connections between the so-called Manchunas and the sea, uh, or the idea of China as purely agricultural based society without any significant connections with the maritime world. So these kind of existing misunderstanding I would say I mean they are still waiting for us to 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 reconstruct and, and they haven't yet been totally resolved.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, use very interesting categories in the book that I would like you to tell us more about how do you conceptualize the categories of sea power uh, maritime consciousness and maritime frontier and how do you use them for understanding the relationship between China and the sea?
2: Yeah, surely. Well, this is going to be a long answer, by the way. Uh, so so if, uh, let me just get started with sea power. Uh, well, I would say most of us will conceptualize sea power with reference to the very famous American admiral, Alfred Mahan. Um, so, and Mahan's idea is absolutely influential. And we also have to understand that his... But we, but we have to understand that his theories were very much based... On the histories of some sea powers in Europe and America, and his influential book, on um, uh, his treatise was published in the late nineteenth century. In in such a case, I mean, I I always ask myself, I mean, what happened before Mahan published his work? Does it mean that we 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 didn't have any sea power discourses before the nineteenth century? So the reason for the office is it's absolutely not, and. And and I also kept on asking myself. I mean, what if we try to shift the focus from those Euro-American powers to some Asian powers, uh, which also had very close connections with the sea, such as the Qing Empire or the Ottoman Empire? Um, therefore, I would argue that the idea of sea power um, should be carefully conceptualized across across time and space. Um, in, in the late 19th century, according to Mahan, uh, sea power might have more profound connections with aggressive expansions or imperialism and so forth. But we can't simply use this particular pair of lenses to examine the meaning of sea power in 18th century Asian water, simply because the political landscape or, or seascape of East and Southeast Asia in the 18th century was not the same as the 19th. Uh, Therefore, it's it's sensible to me that the empires in Asia back then might conceptualise sea power as something else. They might pay more attention on, for example, like sea policing, uh, protecting major sea lanes, and making sure offshore islands were under control, instead of paying more attention to those like aggressive expansion overseas. Uh, Therefore, it's not that necessary in my view, to link sea power and aggressive invasions across the sea in the early modern world. And this is how I conceptualize sea power in my research. And, and then let's move on to maritime consciousness. Uh, I would say like the idea of sea power, I, I believe the meaning of maritime consciousness also changed across, across time and space. In other words, maritime consciousness should not merely be interpreted as the way in which a country flexes its military muscles on the sea. It's a more layered concept that defines the state's level of interest in the ocean. Well, historically, the more dependent the state was on its sea space, the more intense was its maritime consciousness. In other words, if the state's domestic economic activities were either closely related to or even conditioned by seaborn trade, particularly those activities related to production and distributions, then the stakes maritime consciousness would have been considerable. So this is how I consider uh, maritime consciousness should, should be conceptualized. And so finally, the maritime frontier. And so a very quick answer to this is is that um, the Qing court did not only see the maritime frontier as a barrier that could guard against potential invaders, but also a corridor and a significant platform that facilitates sea trade, sea transportations, and various types of trans-regional activities that took place in the ocean. And that is also how I conceptualized the maritime frontier and also defined the maritime frontier in the book.
0: Thank you so much for unpacking these uh, conceptualizations, and they're really useful. And I agree with you in understanding uh, the history that you uh, outline in the book. Uh, and in the second chapter, we learn more about that, and we've talked about a bit about the the previous uh, empires and how they figured in the historiography. So the second chapter, uh, modeling the sea, um, how did the Cheng court uh, named and modeled maritime spaces compared to their predecessors that you've mentioned? And in what ways, um, if I may add, the Qing leaders' modeling of the maritime world conceptualized and divided the ocean compared to intruding European empires? And finally, what were the resulting challenges uh, from this conceptualization?
2: Mm, yeah, okay. So I let me first answer your first question. <laughs> um, that is, how did the Qing court named and model the maritime spaces, compared to their predecessors? Um, well, the, the Qing court applied a highly recognized and Han chinese centered dichotomy to name and model maritime spaces, which is the inner space and the outer space. Um, the, the, the inner and outer conceptions was clearly not a Manchu invasions because we found like lots of examples in Chinese history that used that, this kind of like inner outer dichotomy. Um, but, but the Qing court, I mean, in my view, applied it quite effectively and deliberately uh, in managing and governing their the maritime frontiers. Uh, in, in other words, the, the Qing court did recognize some sea space as the inner sea, which is within, within their imperial domains, whereas the outer sea uh, sees space beyond their political and economic extractions. And compared to their pre- predecessors, like the Ming or the, or, the, or the Song dynasty, uh, I I think the Qing com- complicated the inner-outer conceptions in their maritime policies, even though the origins of the inner-outer conceptions was uh, in, in Han Chinese history. And because from the historical evidence uh, that I found, such as the imperial edicts and some sea charts, we can see that the Qing used the term the inner-sea and the outer-sea quite extensively. Uh, therefore, it is obvious that they did attempt to, to attempt to conceptualize the maritime frontier in order to substantiate the control over some particular maritime spaces. And and responding to your second question, which is um I think is um in what ways the Qing leaders model the maritime world, uh is it, different from those European empires? Um, well, I would say. In the case of European maritime history, we, we we know that the Europeans, especially the Dutch and the British, they had long been debating the, the proper way to divide the ocean since the 16th century. They then came up with ideas such as the open sea, the free sea, and then close the sea. Uh, well, whereas in the case of late imperial, chi- imperial China, we, we didn't see any similar debate on the other side of the continent. Uh, One of the reasons, I believe, is because the political landscape of the Asian Sea was very much different from the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. As a result, it's understandable that we couldn't find a a Hugo Grotius, for example, in Main and Qing, China. Even though we couldn't find those theories, such as the open sea formulated in, in the Qing Empire, it doesn't mean that the Qing uh, did not conceptualize the ocean. As I mentioned earlier, I mean they did conceptualize it according to an inner-outer conceptions. Uh, and One of the key features of the inner-outer conceptions embraced by the Qing court is that it had relatively little to do with the freedom of the sea or, or oceanic expansion or invasion. Uh, it's more about maintaining peace, uh, prosperity, and stability across the inner sea space. So, I believe this fundamental concept contrasts quite significantly with the European conceptions of seeing the sea as an
1: international territory in, in the European context. Very interesting. Um, in the successive chapters, uh, chapter three, the Dragon Navy, and in chapter four, guarded management you talk extensively about the Navy and Customs Office. And I was wondering if you could explain to us a bit what these meant in the Qing context and what were their infrastructural foundations and functions? Yeah, surely. Uh, Well, the the
2: Qing Navy um, established in the 18th century was uh, responsible for quite a lot of tasks. They had to police the coast on a regular basis um, they had to protect sea traders across the inner sea. Um, they had to spot out pirates and ensure them ensure, ensure that they won't hide on those offshore islands. And and the navy was also responsible for, for assisting and re- rescuing shipwrecked survivors. And of course, I mean they had to be ready for any sea battles that might potentially occur. Uh, while the custom office established in the 16, 1684 was an institutional innovation that provide a more systematic and centralized approach uh, for the Qing court to manage uh, managing private sea trades and maritime security in the long 18th century. Um, the custom officials, they were responsible for collecting taxes, issuing licenses for, for traders, and also assisting the navies to to tackle illegal sea trade, such as smuggling and, and trafficking. So so basically, they were they were very similar to our current understanding of the customs nowadays.
1: Very interesting. Uh, in Chapter Five, Riding the Waves, which I I have to say I honestly quite enjoyed, uh, since I have a, my own personal interest in these types of intellectual genealogies and histories. Can you? Give us a sense of how the Confucian literati thought about maritime power in the 18th century. And sort of a few added questions to that is, what was the extent of their influence on their successors in the mid-19th century? I'm thinking of figures such as Wei Yuan or Lin Zexu, who had to deal and contend with the European encounter through the seas. And sort of lastly, how did the, the views differ between these two generations of literati? especially as the latter began to speak of a uh, maritime consciousness
2: mm-hmm. okay um, yeah let me first answer your first question <laughs> uh, I, uh, which is like the, the connections between those Confucius literati's and, and, and maritime power and how did they like, conceptualize the sea? Well I would I would say that in most of those maritime writings in the 18th century what I found is that the the intellectuals or literatis or scholar officials, they would connect maritime power and stability across the sea together. So in their conceptualizations, they would see that the uh, a Chinese way to maintain itself as a sea power was to sustain a navy and to ensure that the coast was properly managed and governed. Um, even though some literati, as we as you, as you can find in my chapter, um, they were aware of some types of European's economic expansions uh, in the Indian Oceans or Southeast Asia, uh, I I don't think um, those intellectuals in China encouraged the Qing court to follow suit. In in other words, I mean the Inner Sea mattered more than the Outer Sea in those writings, and I think these narratives echoed very nicely with with the maritime visions upheld by the Qing courts at that time. And so, in responding to your second question, there's something to do with like, intellectuals in, in the subsequent centuries, including Wei Yuan and so forth. Uh, I, I, I think some of the maritime writers in the 18th century, that influenced the later generations in the subsequent century. Especially the records uh, and informations concerning those European seafaring powers, such as the Dutch, the Portuguese, and the British. Uh, for example, if we look at the the the海国图志, the Illustrated Treaties on the Maritime Kingdoms, written by Wei Yuan as you mentioned earlier in eighteen forty three, uh, most of the background informations and and the in the histories of those European powers. As well as his connections, historical connections with the sea, came from maritime writings published in the 18th century. So Wei Yuan was not producing something new, but but summarizing what had been produced and published in the past. And in and in terms of guarding the coast, as well as highlighting uh, some of the importance of securing the, securing the inner sea, uh, Wei Yuan and and some of the 19th century writers also drew some parallels with their predecessors. Um, so in a way, I, I would argue that they shared some kinds of maritime consciousness in this regard. Um, but of course, I mean, we, we also have to be very careful that some strategies defined by Wei Yuan, uh, such as taking advantages of the barbarian power and their inventions, um, well, these kind of like strategies I mean, came out in the wake of the Opium War. And if we focus on these tactics, uh, I, I don't think there are any substantial connections between Wei Yuan and those 18th century maritime writers. Um, so uh, cutting to the chase is that we, we shouldn't overstate or understate the connections between these writers in these centuries.
1: Very interesting. I, I have sort of a side question that you know, perhaps is not directly addressed in the book, but was sort of popping up in my head repeatedly as I was reading it, is maybe you could comment about the relationship sort of between the administrative practices, approaches, strategies adopted by the Qing Empire along the maritime frontier, and those practices or approaches and strategies in Inner Asia itself. Like one particular example that I was thinking about, and perhaps is very relevant to the 19th century, is the unequal treaties signed with the Kokandis um, on the inner Asian frontier, and which were then used as a template in dealing with the European powers. So I'm wondering like, whether you have seen any correspondence and uh, uh, sort of reproduction of those approaches on the maritime frontier. Uh, and also how simply the court and the official gentry thought about the relational balance between these two very distinct types of frontiers. If we think of the empire as a unitary whole,
2: mm-hmm. well, I I, th- I I think we can we can draw some meaningful parallels between the maritime frontiers and, and the inner Asian frontiers uh, in the 18th century. Well, first of all, the, the Qing court also applied the inner outer conceptions as one of the tools to manage its inland frontier. Uh, For example, under the Qing tributary system, they had inner tributary states and outer tributary states highlighted or identified, Uh, while the former, which is the inner tributary states, mean they will will receive uh, more protection than the later. And so in addition to the inner outer dichotomy, uh, we we also see that the Qing um, considered the maritime frontiers, uh, namely the Inner Sea, as I mentioned earlier, not only a barrier that could prevent potential invaders, but but also a corridor that could facilitate trade, transportations, and various kinds of trans-regional activities. And so these approaches were were very much similar to the way that they look at the Inner Asian frontiers, and and. So, so by focusing on these frontier policies, as well as the way that the Qing court managed and governed uh, those transregional activities across these frontiers, either on land or in the sea, uh, I believe that we can see that the Qing was actually a very practical and flexible empire in the early modern world. And so, these would be some of the meaningful connections I mean, that I would draw to connect the maritime frontiers and the Inner Asian frontiers together. Uh, on the ground on their frontier policies.
0: This is a very interesting uh, linkage that Muhammad made. Uh, the, the book is also quite richly illustrated and the, the maps are really beautiful and uh, i was I, I was wondering about um, the sources that you draw on for writing this book. Uh, as, as a book that makes quite a bold intervention in the historiography, I'm sure many graduate students who are listening to the podcast, are wondering about the archival sources and what is available to to basically access the maritime history of the Qing Empire. So if you can share with our listeners some of those uh, available archival and other sources to 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 rewrite the, the maritime history of the Qing Empire.
2: Yeah, surely. Well I think the in terms of primary materials or archival sources, uh, uh, I would of course I mean I would suggest Encourage like students to, to go through those like imperial documents, because uh, when I remember when I was doing this research project, um, I I have to like gathered, uh, um, gather like various types of archives in Beijing, in Taipei, in Japan, and some other libraries in the States and Europe. and those valuable primary materials that I found they were not that rare. Actually, I mean, there were uh, some like like traditional imperial edicts, traditional gazetteers, traditional like like private writings produced by scholars. It's just that they were not being valued uh, um, highly before, or heavily before. So the the materials were out there, and and, and it was just uh, waiting for us to extract them from those like from the sources. And but the other good thing about doing maritime history, in my view, is that we can also make good use of non-textual materials including as you said i mean sea charts map illustrations and those illustrated materials because uh since the Ming dynasty uh in scholar officials in in china already began to producing um sea charts or illustrated materials related to the sea so this would definitely be one of the key uh hops of materials i mean that we shouldn't overlook and the good thing is that like uh, there are some like tea charts were already being digitalized and uploaded to um, some databases uh, in Taiwan and in the Library of Congress and also the British libraries. So they are easily accessible, and we can you can easily just go go to their website and and take a look at them and to evaluate and examine their importance as historical evidence. And finally, I would also suggest my student to focus on some. Like like uh, uh, artifacts, which is non-textual sources or non-visual uh, uh, sources, which is artifacts. For example, some like uh, if you're interested in in the trading patterns between China and external world, um, you might be interested in taking a look at the, at a the vase or porcelain vase or some uh, some other like like actual commodities that might also give you a sense of uh, how the chain court engage itself with the global market via the maritime
1: world. So these would be my summer suggestions. Very interesting. Um, I had actually two questions, but they sort of take us to the era of the People's Republic. Um, The first question is really related to your thoughts, perhaps, about how the new Qing history debate has evolved, especially since we've seen in the past few years criticisms, I think, coming from the Academy of Social Sciences in China uh, with regards to sort of the uh, overall tone and trajectory of the scholarship. Uh, And I was wondering whether you had any thoughts about that. And the second question um, is whether you see, you know, sort of with this historical hindsight uh, and your in-depth study of Qing approaches to the maritime frontier—any continuities with regards to the People's Republic's own approaches to to its own maritime periphery, as it were?
2: Mm, mm, mm. Well, oh, that's another very broad question. And uh, um, I would well first, I would I would try to comment on the New Qing History. Uh, I would say that the school of New Qing History, I mean, they 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 does have its importance and significance, but of course, I mean, I know that they also receive like, criticism from from in, in mainland China and even in, and also in Taiwan, and even beyond the Chinese academic sphere. Uh, but I still think that there is some importance that we can we can learn from the New Qing History School. For example, the one thing is that um is that they, they the New Qing historians kept on reminding us the. Um, the importance of situating the Qing Empire within the early modern context, which is uh, namely the 17th and 18th century. I think this is quite important to argue that the Qing at that time was was not simply a, a, uh, a victims of imperialism, but also like a expanding empire um, uh, in, in, in within the Asian context. So this is something that I, I, I believe that we can actually benefit from the new Qing school of history. And the other thing about it is that the, the sources of Manchu materials, um, even though some historians in China would argue that I mean, well, most of those like materials written in Manchus um, didn't really bring us any new insights um, uh, of the Qing history, because most of those ideas how we can also find similar evidence from materials written in Chinese. But I still believe that like um, some of the materials not just written written in Manchus, but also written in Mongolians or Tibetans, they could portray, they could provide us with a more floral pictures of Qing frontier management, in a sense, throughout the long 18th century. Uh, For example, there was a book published uh, a couple of years ago, uh, written by Jonathan uh, Jonathan Schnexinger, and he talks about the history of fur and its connections with the Mongolian frontier and and the Manchurian frontier in the Qing Empire, which was remarkable, and I think this is absolutely like like important work because it helped us to understand I mean, the connections, and the circulations of these kind of commodities, um, across the Qing frontier, and his his work I mean mainly rely on sources written in Mongolian, and Tibetan, and also Manchurian, and in which I mean I don't think we can find these informations I mean from. Materials written in Chinese. Uh, so this is one of the examples. I mean that I think we should still like um, give some kinds of values to the New Qing History School. And I think the New Qing History, uh, the new Qing history as a school also influenced my work because I, I because I, as I said, I mean it, it kept on reminding us that the Qing Empire should be situated within an early modern context, and um, so. When, when I, when I try to con- uh, uh, make some linkages between the Qing Empire and sea power or the conceptions of you know, maritime governance, this type of like, um, um, empire discourse uh, featuring the, the Qing Empire embraced by those new Qing historians uh, are very useful and effective. So it helps me to come up with the conclusion that the Qing was not just a, um, a, a, an empire that played flexibly to govern its inland frontier, but also its maritime frontiers. So this is how I benefit from the school. And so that I, I think that we should still like, I uh, value the importance of them. And your other questions is about the, the the Qing connections with the maritime world, as well as its connections with the PRC these days. Well, I think we can also draw like quite a lot of connections and parallels between the Qing and the PRC today. Especially when we talk about the 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 some maritime policies, are uh, embraced by the Chinese government in this new century, like the One Belt One Road initiative, this kind of things. Uh, one thing, one fundamental concept about the One Belt One Road initiative to me is that um, China would like to balance like its influence and connections across in Asia as well as um, those like uh, the global South via the ified in maritime domain. Uh, so in a way, the Qing was also paying particular attention to balance I mean both frontiers and to make sure that stability, prosperity, and and constant substantial uh, uh, substantial development uh, would kept on developing uh, throughout the long eighteenth century. So these kind of parallels, and in terms of their attitudes and and policies, uh, I would say that we can find some interesting we can draw some interesting comparison in
0: it. Very interesting insights. Um, and, and thinking about th- this book as setting uh, research agendas in, in Qing historiography, I was wondering um, if you can share with us if you have any thoughts on this matter about writing maritime and oceanic history of of the Qing era. That not necessarily a story of the Empire per se, but telling the story from the vantage point of non-imperial actors. What's your thoughts on this?
2: Uh, well I, I, I think uh, there are still lots of uh, angles or dimensions I mean that we can apply in evaluating or examining chain maritime history during the early modern period and we can definitely like move beyond the Imperial Lens or or the governmental angle or the so-called the top to the bottom uh, uh, historical approach to the matter. Uh, for example, when we try to focus on the cultural history of of um, the maritime history of the Qing Empire, there are lots of fascinating topics that we can uh, further develop. Uh, for example, like the I'm working on a small paper I mean, which features the. Some uh, um, maritime maritime commodities being consumed in the 18th century, uh, which is shark fins, and and also there are some other like topics like the naval uniforms uh, in 18th century. I mean that we could also like pay attention to, and the the maritime poems and. And some maritime writings, which is um, very much more, lit- lit- uh, uh, more like literary. Uh, for example, after Taiwan was being annexed in 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 1683, um, there were lots of like. Uh, scholars or travellers I mean decided to cross the Taiwan Strait and then to visit Taiwan and they wrote about their journeys, they wrote about Taiwan, they wrote about the sea. So these types of maritime writings um differ from what I introduce in my book. Um they were more like uh more more comprehensive than more like uh, uh, um I would say uh more Enchanting, in the sense that they describe their first, uh, their, their views I mean towards the ocean, uh, from a literary perspective. So I think these are these potential topics I mean that def- uh, certainly deserve I mean more attention. Uh, in uh, uh, if if students or scholars are interested in evaluating
0: evaluating more
2: about the maritime history of Qing China in the eighteenth century.
0: Yes, these all of these sound like great projects to take on, and I hope the students and the listeners who are listening really get excited by these ideas and and go on and and explore and unearth more stories indeed, that we don't know.
2: Indeed about, indeed,
0: about this period. Well, Ron, you've taken a lot of your time, and uh, I'm really thankful for taking on such complex and big questions quite masterfully, um, as 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 a, a traditional question that we have. Um, we would like to know what are you working on now and i'm not expecting you to be working during the pandemic but if you have any project that you would like to share uh with the listeners
2: yeah sure right but of course i mean the pandemic is like it's very it makes it very difficult for everybody i mean every researchers I mean to continue doing their research but but still i I'm, I'm now working on a couple of new projects uh based on what i have in hand uh well, well, one of them is about the history of the Yellow and the Bohai Seas in the early modern era. And the reason I'm very interested in these particular maritime spaces is because we we have long been talking about the southeastern coast of China when linking China and the maritime world. And I, I would consider this as a chi- southeast China centricism. Uh, even though the southeastern coast was of the utmost importance in in connecting China and the West, I I think the northern coast of China also experienced unique and remarkable historical developments in relations to the sea, in which we shouldn't overlook. So that is something that I'm very keen to uh, find out in the coming few years.
0: That sounds fascinating. I can't wait to read that as well. Um... Well, thank you for uh, sharing uh, these insights from your very informative book. And thank you for the listeners for um, tuning in with us. Uh, thank you all for listening to today's episode in which we explored The Blue Frontier, Maritime Vision and Power in the Qing Empire, published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. The book is available and you can find the link, link on the blog. Uh, this is your host, Ahmed Al mazmi
1: and co-host Mohammed Al-Sidhiri.
0: Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.